Woke Culture's Worst Enemy, Owners of AI, Becoming a Citizen Journalist, Pakistan Money Laundering. I'm Mark Paquita, and we'll explore these topics and more in today's eighth episode of the Unite American Show. Welcome. Have you met Woke Culture's Worst Enemy? If you haven't, you will today. His name is James Lindsay. We're going to talk about Lindsay today, and we're going to spend lots of time on him in future episodes. He's a secret weapon against progressives who are trying to turn us into a communist society. When you start to hear from him and see him, you'll know why. Here's a short clip from one of his recent presentations. The goal, my main goal with this workshop, this is kind of my thing, this is sort of what I do, is I want to try to bring conceptual clarity to this issue. Um, I'm not a policymaker, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a lot of things, but I do have kind of the ability to cut through the jargon and the BS. I really understand the wokish language, as it were. So I want to bring conceptual clarity that's going to include linguistic clarification, which is going to be extremely important. It's extremely frustrating and extremely annoying to have to deal with linguistic clarification as a centerpiece of a kind of culture war, or ideological battle or whatever, but it really does come down to the meanings of words, uh, even like the meaning of, you know, what do you mean by is? Um, I also want to give conceptual contextualization to what we're, what we're looking at with DEI and the related subjects, because as it turns out, this diversity, equity, inclusion stuff, when we start and start to see how the linguistic manipulations work, you're going to kind of feel like, well, this isn't real. This is kind of fraudulent in some sense. And uh, the thing is that if we enter into what we might refer to as clown world, this stuff actually does make sense. There is an internal, I, I hesitate to use the word logic, but there is an internal, not quite consistent way of thinking about issues in which you can kind of understand, well not kind of, you can completely understand where this stuff comes from, how it gets implemented, why it gets implemented, as it gets implemented, and what its goals are, and therefore what its next steps will be, and why it's going to create the disasters that it pretty readily creates everywhere it goes. Um, in particular, these two things come together, and so I want you to become aware, I'm not going to harp on this, I did a long podcast on it about the nature of what we call pseudo-reality, philosophers refer to pseudo-realities, false linguistic constructions that create a distortion of reality, and these things are called theoretical lenses. They're ways of interpreting the data that you find in the world, of filtering the data that you see in the world, and so... That's when I said, if we step into clown world, it makes sense. It turns out within the not truly real world created by these linguistic distortions and these manipulations, um, there is a logic that plays out. And clown world is describable. It is a false reality, though. And the reason you have to understand that is reality doesn't really care about your theory. Reality is the thing that you run into when your beliefs are false. And so eventually reality is going to catch up with us. This stuff does not work. Much of what I tell you here will come from Wikipedia, and I use Wikipedia intentionally so I can highlight the bias that often appears in Wikipedia. The following are excerpts, not the entire Wikipedia entry. James Lindsay is an American author, cultural critic, mathematician, and conspiracy theorist. He is known for the Grievance Studies Affair, in which he, Peter Bogoshin, and Helen Pluckrose submitted hoax articles to academic journals in 2017 and 2018. 
Lindsay has written several books, including Cynical Theories, 2020, which he authored with Pluckrose. Lindsay attended Tennessee Tech, where he obtained both his BS and MS in mathematics. He later earned his PhD in mathematics from the University of Tennessee in 2010. In 2017, Lindsay and Bagoshin published a hoax paper titled The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct. In writing the paper, Lindsay and Bagoshin intended to imitate the style of post-structuralist discursive gender theory. The paper argued that the penis should be seen not as an anatomical organ, but as a social construct isomorphic to performative toxic masculinity. After the paper was rejected by Norma, they later submitted it to Cogent Social Sciences, where it was accepted for publication. If you don't know what Norma is, don't fret, neither did I. It was established in 2006 as the Nordic Journal for Masculinity Studies, a joint effort of the masculine studies research communities in Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, and Sweden. It was renamed Norma, International Journal for Masculinity Studies, in 2014 when it was purchased by Routledge. It's called a quarterly academic journal in the field of masculinity studies. So, Norma editors might have realized Lindsay and Bagoshin were messing with them, but the journal Cogent Social Sciences didn't. Probably because most academics, and I use that term loosely, in this field of study, again, I use that phrase loosely, are full of shit. That's what Bagashin and Lindsay set out to prove. More from Wikipedia with my edits and corrections. Beginning in August 2017, Lindsay, Bagashin, and Pluckrose wrote 20 hoax papers, which they submitted to peer-reviewed journals using several pseudonyms, as well as the name of Richard Baldwin, a friend of Bagashin and Professor Emeritus of History at Florida's Gulf Coast State College. The project ended early after one of the papers, published in the feminist geography journal Gender, Place, and Culture, was questioned by investigative journalist Tony Araxanin of Campus Reform, who realized the article wasn't real due to its lack of following academic journal publishing standards, which caused widespread interest and was covered by multiple journalists. The trio subsequently reveal the full scope of their work in a YouTube video created and released by documentary filmmaker Mike Nina, which was accompanied by an investigation by the Wall Street Journal. By the time of this revelation, seven of their 20 papers had been accepted, seven were still under review, and six had been rejected. One paper, accepted by feminist social work journal Afila, contained passages copied from Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf with feminist language added. Academic reviewers had praised the hoax studies of Lindsay, Bagoshin, and Pluckrose as a rich and exciting contribution to the study of the intersection between masculinity and anality. Excellent and very timely and important dialogue for social workers and feminist scholars. 
Lindsay and team really embarrass the academics who promote themselves using their history of having their research published in these so-called academic journals. They expose these self-anointed intellectual losers for who they are, progressive hacks with little value to Western society and an aim, quite frankly, to destroy it. In terms of Lindsay's evolution politically, Wikipedia goes on to say, Lindsay has supported Democratic Party candidates, including volunteering for Barack Obama, and was part of the New Atheism Movement. He said in 2022 that he originally identified with the left, though he had stopped considering himself a liberal. Lindsay stated that he does not really consider himself a conservative, but added, I do notice that when I talk about conservatives now, I tend to use the pronoun we. So maybe on some psychological level, getting down in there, I've started to identify. But I don't know if I mean we conservatives or we people who are standing up for broadly classical liberal values like the United States was founded upon. Team reality, if you will. And if that's conservative, so be it. Lindsay is a critic of woke culture, which he analogizes to religious belief. He describes the social justice movement as his ideological enemy. Though he opposed Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election, Lindsay announced his intention to vote for Trump in the 2020 election, arguing that the danger of wokeness is much greater than that of a Trump presidency. Here's where the progressive socialists get their shots in at Lindsay. They're trying to frame him as a conspiracy theorist, which means his theories are likely true, at minimum plausible, and they have no response. So they must attack him personally. Wikipedia says, Lindsay has promoted and or been linked to several prominent conspiracy theories. He is a proponent of the right-wing LGBT grooming conspiracy theory, and has been credited as one of several public figures responsible for popularizing groomer as a slur directed at LGBTQ educators and activists by members of the political right. Lindsay has referred to the pride flag as the flag of a hostile enemy. In my opinion, all true. Wikipedia continues... Implying that a genocide against whites in the U.S. is imminent has the potential to inspire racist violence. Such comments are extreme, reckless, and irresponsible. They should be denounced. Again, in my opinion, he's right on. Wikipedia goes on. Lindsay has promoted the far-right cultural Marxism conspiracy theory, which alleges a concerted effort by Marxist critical theorists to infiltrate academic, and cultural institutions to destroy Western civilization. The theory has been wholly rejected by mainstream scholars and has been characterized as anti-Semitic by the Southern Poverty Law Center and others. Lindsay has denied charges of anti-Semitism and has argued that the term cultural Marxism is not inherently anti-Semitic. Here's Lindsay talking about the fraud of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is now being renamed AE, anti-racism and equity, to camouflage it from the bad rap that DEI has because of people like you and me exposing its true objectives to the unenlightened public. 
One of the reasons that you have to become discerning if you want to deal with what's going on with diversity, equity, and inclusion and the related issues uh, is because the professional literature that exists on this is worthless. It's wholly corrupted. I don't know how to tell you which journal you can read and trust an article out of it, which magazine you can read and trust an article, what book you can read and trust a chapter or a paragraph without knowing maybe who the author is, if I happen to know who that author happens to be. The academic literature, and many of you will know my background, some of you won't, but I played a role in exposing the fact that the academic literature is profoundly corrupted with this ideological uh, bent that underlies, as it turns out, what has become the DEI movement that we run into today. So we can't trust the professional or academic literature on this. It might say, oh, there's a study that shows that diversity increases output by blah, 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 blah. And it turns out that if you actually did your legwork, you did your due diligence and dug into that study and saw how they were interpreting the results or what the limitations in that study were, and then what they claim that the study shows, it usually one or two links down that, that chain, you find something just completely broken. You cannot draw the conclusion that they're, they're drawing from the studies that they're claiming in many, many cases. And a lot of times it's hardly more than a polemic or a opinion piece that's been glorified as an academic article. Sometimes they're written as autoethnographies, which are literally diary entries with, with citations. And so it's very, very difficult to rely on, oh, well, there's a study that says, because the quality of the study, it may not even in fact even be a study. It might be an opinion piece calling itself a study. Listen to Lindsay explain cultural Marxism, and you tell me what doesn't make sense or is factually inaccurate. I'm just going to be blunt. I'm not, I don't mess around with what I'm talking about. What we are up against, and DEI is an integral vehicle for making it happen, is communism. In a new form, it's not the communism of, of Lenin. It's, a, it's new. It's in a new shape. And there's only one way to defeat an encroaching communist movement, and the way is through discernment. You have to be able to discern the linguistic lies that allow them to seize institutional power and to apply policies that do the damage that pervert the institution into a communist organ. If you cannot discern that, you are not ready. Know your enemy. You have to actually know how they do it. You have to know what both sides of the picture are why their linguistic manipulation is the way that it is and then what it really means and be able to argue both sides better than the people pushing it. And then you have to be able to go and discerningly apply that in order to push this stuff back. And that is actually the, the stakes. DEI is not, whatever DEI might have been in 1980, DEI is not friendly now. It is not good. And it is the vehicle to move communism into the corporate world more than anything else, more than education, more than anything else. It is to create, I said it's new communism. It is to make communism that works through corporations, which is a fusion of communism and fascism into one new thing. And if you want to know what that, you, how can that be? That can't exist. Communism and fascism are opposites. Look at China under the model that was pioneered by Deng Xiaoping that's still in operation today, where they have a limited open market that is all at the pleasure of the CCP, which is communist, which redistributes resources through a communist and socialist program. That's the model. DEI is the mechanism by which that gets brought into the corporate world primarily, but also into schools and other things, kind of as an accessory. 
Can you see why I called James Lindsay our secret weapon against woke culture and the progressive socialist communists in America? More on and from James Lindsay in future episodes. Wow. After hearing James Lindsay, I feel moved to say this. I'm Mark Piquita, an American citizen. I have a bold vision for America, and I'm sure you do too. I don't want to go back to the 1950s or the 80s or even the 2010s. I want to go forward. I want to go forward and be the best country we can be. That requires us to get back to what made us great in the first place, and that's freedom. We need to be freed from government rules and regulations that choke us. We need to be freed from an unconstitutional, overreaching federal government. We need to free our state and local governments to do what they're constitutionally given rights to do. We need to be freed from the bonds of corruption. We need to ferret it out and eradicate it everywhere in our society, but especially in Washington, D.C. By doing this, we'll reduce the size of the federal government by 25 to 50 percent, eliminate our deficit and pay down our debt. We need to bring manufacturing back to the United States. We need to do it by leveling the playing field between us and countries that cheat, like China. Countries that abuse human rights, take advantage of workers, and drastically pollute the environment need to be made to pay for those evils. I'm convinced if we level the playing field, America will always win. Because of Americans. We need to be free from those who hate America. We need to be freed from those who call America racist. We need to be freed from those who call America homophobic. We need to be freed from those who call America sexist. We need to be freed from those who call America and American xenophobes. We need to be freed from cancel culture and intersectional grievance mindsets. If you don't like it here, it's easy to leave. Heck, I'll even pay for your passport. And if we do this, we'll unleash the pent-up potential of the greatest people and greatest society on the face of the planet. Let's take America back. If you've been watching or listening to the show, you know we've been exploring the dangers of AI, artificial intelligence, which are sweeping, as well as who owns AI and the biggest company in AI, OpenAI. If you're new to this podcast, you can catch up on the progression we've gone through about AI by checking out the AI segments in prior episodes. I'll list them in the show notes. I recorded this segment for last week's show, but we had so much material, something had to be removed, and it was this segment. That's why it will look a little different than the rest. Now, let's be real. Who would think people involved with OpenAI would have extremely progressive political views, be political activists in both major parties spending tons of money, have been involved with or close to those who were and are involved with a Google-China AI connection that's been called treasonous, be vocal never-Trumpers, be members of the Bilderberg Group, be vocal DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion cheerleaders, be members of the Council on Foreign Relations, have funded political dirty tricks, but they have. Last week, we analyzed the key employees at OpenAI, their strengths and weaknesses, as well as their political leanings. 
This week, we're going to look at the key non-employees involved with OpenAI, the investors and board members. At least one is a major problem for those of us who like freedom, opportunity, and prosperity for all. I've pulled most of this together from Wikipedia, vetting the accuracy of what I found there with other sources. Some of these folks are pretty darn secretive. I don't want to take credit for the work of others. Adam D'Angelo is an American internet entrepreneur and a member of the board of directors of OpenAI. D'Angelo is best known as the co-founder and CEO of Quora. He was chief technology officer of Facebook and served as its vice president of engineering until 2008. In June 2009, he started Quora. He invested $20 million of his own money into Quora as a part of their Series B round of financing. So he puts his money where his mouth is. He's a graduate of the California Institute of Technology, where he graduated with a BS in computer science. Holden Karnofsky is an American nonprofit executive. He is a co-founder and co-chief executive officer of the research and grant-making organization Open Philanthropy. Karnofsky co-founded the charity evaluator GiveWell with Ellie Hassenfeld in 2007 and is vice chair of its board of directors. Karnofsky graduated from Harvard University with a degree in social studies in 2003. At Harvard, he was a member of the Harvard Lampoon, so he's probably got a pretty good sense of humor. After graduating, he worked at Bridgewater Associates, a large investment management fund based in Westport, Connecticut. Karnofsky identifies with the ideas of effective altruism. Remember that term and is both represented and engaged with the effective altruist community. Early in his career, Karnofsky said he subscribed to a consequential moral framework that hoped to give people more power to live the life they want to live. In recent years, he has written about the importance of extending empathy to all beings deserving of moral consideration, even when it is unusual or seems strange to do so. He believes that it is important for GiveWell to increase the racial and gender diversity of its employees, toward which the organization has taken steps. He has some deep concerns about AI safety. Siobhan Zillis is a Canadian venture capitalist who works in the technology and artificial intelligence fields. She graduated from Yale University in 2008 with degrees in economics and philosophy. She received academic and athletic financial aid from Yale. She did not come from a wealthy family. Texas court documents show Zillis had twins with Elon Musk who were born in November 2021. Journalists have interviewed sources who claim that they were born via in vitro fertilization. She stated in 2020 that Musk is the person she admires most despite criticism towards him. Tasha McCauley completed her undergraduate studies at Bard College in 2004 and did an MBA at USC, the University of Southern California, graduating in 2014. McCauley was the founder and CEO of technology company Fellow Robots and chief executive of GeoSim Systems, a digital city modeling company. 
In December 2014, Macaulay married Joseph Gordon Levitt, the famous actor. Their first child, a son, was born in August 2015. Their second son was born in June 2017. He and Macaulay do not want to reveal any details of their children to the media, including their first names. They had been living in Wellington, New Zealand since October 2020 after moving his new TV production to New Zealand in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Gordon Levitt has expressed support for the effective altruism movement. In 2017, he spoke at the Effective Altruism Global Conference in San Francisco. That's a connection Macaulay and Gordon Levitt have with Holden Karnofsky. Jessica Livingston is an American author and a founding partner of the seed stage venture capital firm Y Combinator. She also organized Startup School. Previously, she was the VP of Marketing at Adams Harkness Financial Group. She has a BA in English from Bucknell University. She is a 1989 graduate of Phillips Academy, Andover. In early 2007, Livingston released Founders at Work, Stories of Startups' Early Days, a collection of interviews with famous startup founders, including Steve Wozniak, Mitch Kapoor, Ray Ozzie, and Max Levchin. In 2008, she married fellow Y Combinator co-founder Paul Graham. In December 2015, it was announced that Livingston is one of the financial backers of OpenAI. If you recall from Episode 6, OpenAI's chief executive officer, Sam Altman, was also a principal at Y Combinator. This is a tight little circle. Here's where things start to get really interesting. Peter Thiel is a German-American billionaire entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and political activist. A co-founder of PayPal, Palantir Technologies, and Founders Fund, he was the first outside investor in Facebook. As of May 2022, Thiel had an estimated net worth of $7.19 billion and was ranked 297th on the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. He worked as a securities lawyer at Sullivan and Cromwell, as a speechwriter for former U.S. Secretary of Education Bill Bennett, and as a derivatives trader at Credit Suisse. He founded Teal Capital Management in 1996 and co-founded PayPal with Max Levchin and Luke Nozick in 1998, serving as chief executive officer until its sale to eBay in 2002 for $1.5 billion. Thiel is a self-described conservative libertarian, though more recently he has espoused support for national conservatism and criticized economically liberal attitudes toward free trade and big tech. In 2019, Thiel called Google seemingly treasonous and urged a government investigation, citing Google's work with China and asking whether DeepMind or Google's senior management had been infiltrated by foreign intelligence agencies. We discussed a Google-China connection last episode. Teal is a member of the steering committee of the Bilderberg Group, a private annual gathering of intellectual figures, political leaders, and business executives. Teal is a member of the Republican Party. He contributes to both libertarian and Republican candidates and causes. 
By February 2022, Teal was one of the largest donors to Republican candidates in the 2022 election campaign with more than $20.4 million in contributions. He supported 16 senatorial and congressional candidates, several of whom were proponents that there was significant voter fraud in the 2020 election. Two of these senatorial candidates, Blake Masters and J.D. Vance, were also tech investors who had previously worked for Teal. Reed Hoffman is an American internet entrepreneur, venture capitalist, podcaster, and author. Hoffman was the co-founder and executive chairman of LinkedIn, a business-oriented social network used primarily for professional networking. He is currently a partner at the venture capital firm Greylock Partners and a co-founder of Inflection AI. Microsoft proposed to acquire LinkedIn on June 13, 2016 for $26.2 billion in cash. Hoffman became a Microsoft board member on March 14, 2017. Hoffman was a founding investor in the artificial intelligence research company, OpenAI. In March 2022, it was announced that Hoffman was co-founding a new startup, Inflection AI, with his longtime friend and Greylock colleague, Mustafa Suleiman, the co-founder of DeepMind. CNBC reported that, headquartered in Silicon Valley, Inflection will aim to develop AI software products that make it easier for humans to communicate with computers. On March 3rd of this year, Hoffman resigned from his board seat at OpenAI, citing a desire to avoid conflicts of interest between his board seat at OpenAI, his investments in AI technology companies via Greylock Partners, and his role as founder of Inflection AI. Since 2011, Hoffman has been a member of the Bilderberg Group, which gathers 120 to 150 North American and European political leaders and experts from industry, finance, academia, and the media for an annual invitation-only closed-door conference. Since then, he has attended every year except for 2013. Hoffman is also listed as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, to which he was elected in 2015. In April 2013, a pro-immigration lobbying group called FWD.US was launched, with Reed Hoffman listed as one of its founders. In 2014, Hoffman donated $150,000 to the Mayday Pack. Also in 2014, Hoffman contributed $500,000 toward David Chu's state assembly campaign by funding an independent expenditure committee devoted to negative campaigning against his opponent, San Franciscans to hold compost accountable, vote no for compost for state assembly 2014. In 2016, Hoffman contributed $220,000 in support of Democratic candidate for Vermont Governor Matt Dunn, according to a mass media disclosure filed at the Vermont Secretary of State's office. In 2016, Hoffman created a card game modeled after Cards Against Humanity intended to poke fun at U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump. In 2018, the New York Times broke a story alleging that Hoffman had put $100,000 into an experiment that adopted Russia-inspired political disinformation tactics on Facebook, 
This was during the 2017 special Senate race in Alabama and allegedly targeted Roy Moore voters. Hoffman did not immediately respond to the article. He later apologized, also stating he was unaware what the nonprofit Washington, D.C.-based American Engagement Technologies, or AET, had been doing. In 2018, Hoffman helped fund Alloy, a company founded to legally exchange data with affiliated Democrat groups like Super PACs. Hoffman supplied half of the $35 million to start it. The company shut down in 2021 after failing to live up to its promise. Hoffman has been an outspoken proponent of democratic institutions and voting rights, and in 2021 published a piece on LinkedIn titled Protecting Voting Rights, Good for America, Good for American Business. In this piece, he discusses how former American Express CEO Kenneth Cheneau and Merck CEO Kenneth Frazier led corporate America to take an active role in this situation by explicitly advocating for the rights of all American citizens to make their voices heard through the core democratic act of voting. In 2020, Hoffman also penned a piece that argued for making voting day a holiday. Hoffman gave at least half a million dollars to the mainstream Democrats super PAC, which was founded in February 2022, and has since spent more than $1 million supporting the campaigns of moderate Democrats, Harry Quaylar and Kurt Schrader. In October 2022, Hoffman joined the Defense Innovation Board, an independent advisory board for the United States Department of Defense. AI, artificial intelligence, has dangerous implications for mankind. While I want to tie all the possible harmful and possibly nefarious connections together next week, let's at least list what we'll explore as risks in the next episode. Progressive political views, political activism in both parties, Google and China working together, Never Trumpers, DEI, the Bilderberg Group, the Council on Foreign Relations, and Political Dirty Tricks. I can't wait to connect all the dots next week. If you've been watching or listening to this show, you know I've talked about critical concepts and critical strategies we need to understand and deploy to take our freedom, rights, and republic back. If you haven't, you can catch up by checking out those segments in prior shows. I review these concepts and strategies every show because they're important. They are at the core of the work we must do to save our country. The critical concepts are statements of fact I feel we all need to understand and agree on. If not 100%, then 80% or more. In order to have a place where we're all on the same page, a starting point, if you will, from which we can make plans to get where we want to be, to actualize the changes we know in our hearts, minds, and souls need to be made to fix America and take our freedom, rights, and republic back. They are. 80% of American voters are disengaged or apathetic. I've labeled these people the unenlightened. The 80% unenlightened get whatever political news they do consume from left-leaning or very left-leaning news outlets. They're good people getting bamboozled and often naive. 
Social media doesn't reach much of this 80%, if any. It's an echo chamber for the 20% who are engaged, most, if not all, who can't be persuaded to change their position with facts, data, and logic, even if their positions are factually incorrect. We talked about our current breed of political elected officials, about whom we must agree we're fighting the uniparty. It's not RD or conservatives versus liberals. It's insiders versus outsiders, them versus us. It's good versus evil, and it's a rigged game. 80 to 90% of our elected officials are bad hires. We elect stinkers by falling for their acts, their facades, and their caricatures. When it comes to these elected officials, our default mindset when starting to hear from, research, or analyze them must be to trust none of them, make them prove themselves through actions and deeds, and to call them out every time they lie, spin, omit, or manipulate the truth. We must understand their number one priority is re-election, and sometimes it's their only priority. We must view everything they do through this lens first or we'll continue to be swindled and bamboozled. The critical strategies we've discussed are, we need more primary election competition, steel sharpen steel. We need county and state party organizations to commit to not make primary election endorsements of candidates. This way we can have elections, not selections. We need to take back our county and state party organizations. We can't do the first two strategy items unless we do this. We need to assure our elections are safe, secure, and fair. Election integrity requires we, meaning you and me, to get involved. We also need a massive amount of citizen journalism and citizen journalists to counter the mainstream media. We discussed citizen journalism last week. Let's dig into it a little deeper in the next segment. What if you're not prepared to jump into citizen journalism the way I explained last week, like Texas Lindsay, the people or person behind the Arizona Informer, or me? What if you want to take a small step, dip your toe in the citizen journalism water, so to speak? There are some things you can do to start uncovering and exposing the lies and to become more adept at using words and language to encourage more honest and truthful debate on important issues. Here are some ideas. Ask for facts and data to back up statements you know are either incorrect or misleading. Here's an example. Chuck Schumer, a wretched human being in my opinion, recently tweeted this. It's a tweet that reads, because we passed the infrastructure law, the FCC's affordable connectivity program is helping more American households save on high-speed internet. And then you can see the image that says, thanks to the infrastructure law, over 17.5 million households are now saving $30 per month on high-speed internet. I believe it's a bullshit statement, and even if backup data does exist to support this claim, I can guarantee it's manipulated and contorted to not tell the whole story, and thus is dishonest. So, I replied, calmly and without anything but an inquisitive tone of writing, Will you please provide links to credible references that support this statement? 
feel free to just drop them here. Thanks. Why do I do this? Do I think I'm going to get a response? Do I think Chuck Schumer or his social media staff even care I responded? Hell no. It's simple. I'm not looking to outdo them for some perverse personal satisfaction. I'm not seeking to get them to respond or to possibly get them to change their minds. That's futile. In fact, they're not even the target audience for my replies. Who is? The target audience for my replies is readers of those exchanges, often lurkers, who don't comment or react. Let's use the data Twitter provides to explore this. Here are the viewer stats on my reply to Chuck. Not huge, but several times the number of interactions, those being likes and retweets. As you can see, while it had six likes, one retweet, and one comment, there were 67 impressions. That was 67 opportunities for people to see it and read it. You can see by the number of impressions how many people have had the opportunity to read your tweets or replies. There's a vastly greater number of people who see tweets and replies than who react. Let's look at another tweet from Chuck Schumer. It reads, Since the GOP refuses to level with America, Senate Dems are exposing how the Default on America Act will crash the economy, raise costs, and kill good-paying jobs. Republicans' DOA Act has nothing to do with averting default and everything to do with a hard-right agenda. To which I responded, dude, you and 10% Joe already crashed the economy. And I attached a meme that says, with a picture of Joe Biden on it, America was becoming too great, so we fixed it. As you can see in looking at the tweet analytics, 393 people had the opportunity to see my reply. And we're hoping that those are people that are persuadable. They're in the middle. They're logical. Now, time is of the essence here. The sooner you reply trying your best to use data, facts, and logic, the bigger the impact you'll have. Tweets are ephemeral. They come and go quickly in terms of being served up, presented to you and me to see and to do something with. I want to repeat. You can see by the number of impressions how many people have had the opportunity to read your tweet or replies. There is a vastly greater number of people who see tweets and replies than who react. We must get the truth to them, and I see this as being one of the only ways to do it. The mainstream media won't do it. Politicians won't do it. Experts won't do it. Pundits won't do it. We must do this heavy lifting ourselves because everybody else is compromised. They're liars. That's why I do it, and I hope you will too. More citizen journalist ideas in future episodes. I want to start a series that I'm calling our Broken Public Schools, and this will be part one of, of many parts. I want to go back to the beginning of public schools in the United States. The first American schools in the 13 original colonies opened in the 17th century or the 1600s. Boston Latin School was founded in 1635 and is both the first public school and oldest existing school in the United States. 
the first free taxpayer-supported public school in North America, the Mather School, was opened in Dorchester, Massachusetts in 1639. After the revolution, northern states especially emphasized education and rapidly established public schools. By the year 1870, all states had tax-subsidized elementary schools. The U.S. population had one of the highest literacy rates in the world at the time. Private academies also flourished in the towns across the country, but rural areas where most people lived had few schools before the 1880s. In 1821, Boston started the first public high school in the United States. By the close of the 19th century, public secondary schools began to outnumber private ones. As the population grew more diverse in the 1890s, progressive principles of education began to take hold. The goals and purpose of the American educational system were adapted to meet the needs of a diversifying population. The progressive approach attempted to teach critical thinking skills to an engaged and informed citizenry. Child-centered curricula were devised to address the artistic, imaginative, and creative aspects of students. Traditional academic learning combined with vocational training would produce citizens better prepared to understand and participate in community life. Why was this? Why the turn to vocational education? John Taylor Gatto was an American author and school teacher. After teaching for nearly 30 years, he authored several books on modern education, criticizing its ideology, history, and consequences. He was an education activist and once the New York State Teacher of the Year. He's got a fascinating history. Check out links about him in the show notes. Gatto promoted homeschooling and specifically unschooling and open source learning. Wade A. Carpenter, Associate Professor of Education at Barry College, has called Gatto's book scathing and one-sided and hyperbolic, but not inaccurate and describes himself as in agreement with Gatto. Ron Paul strongly endorsed Gatto's work, calling him a legendary teacher who helped shape his own thinking in homeschooling curriculum. Gatto, in his book, Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling, published in 1992, asserts what school does to our children. It confuses students. It presents an incoherent ensemble of information that children need to memorize to stay in school. Apart from tests and trials, this programming is like television. It fills almost all free time of children. One sees and hears something only to forget it again. It teaches them to accept social class affiliation. It makes them indifferent. It makes them emotionally dependent. It makes them intellectually dependent. It teaches them a kind of self-confidence that requires constant confirmation by experts, what is called provisional self-esteem. It makes it clear to them that they cannot hide because they are always supervised. Gatto demystifies the apparent confusion and meaninglessness of public schooling systems by exposing their real purpose and function. He also references Alexander James Inglis, who was another American author and educator who was instrumental in promoting new American secondary education at the beginning of the 20th century. 
According to Gatto, the purpose of public education can be boiled down to the six functions described by Inglis in his 1918 book, Principles of Secondary Education. The adjustive or adaptive function. Schools are designed to establish fixed habits of response to authority. The integrating function. The purpose of this function is to make kids as alike as possible. The diagnostic and directive function. Schools determine each student's proper social role. The differentiating function. Students are trained no more than to meet the standards of determined social role. The selective function. Unadopted students are treated like inferiors to prevent their reproduction. The propedeutic function. A small fraction of selective students is created to continue the schooling system. In other words, they're selected to be teachers. Also in Principles of Secondary Education, English describes the three aims of secondary education to be social civic aim, the preparation of the individual as a prospective citizen and cooperating member of society, economic vocational aim, the preparation of the individual as a prospective worker and producer, individualistic avocational aim, the preparation of the individual for those activities primarily involving individual action, the use of leisure, and the development of personality. He summarized his position of what the intent of secondary education should be as many important functions are therein involved, e.g. means of adjusting the individual and his social environment, the development of a social mind and social cohesion among groups of individuals, the adjustment of individual differences to the differentiated needs of society, control of the factor of selection in secondary education, educational, moral, social, and vocational guidance. Getting back to the question of why the turn to vocational training. The second industrial revolution, the first being in Great Britain, occurred in the U.S. beginning in the mid-1800s, transforming and positioning America for its rise as a global superpower. Skilled vocational workers were needed by industry and the robber barons who owned it. It sure looks to me that the early development of public schools up until the early 1900s was to produce skilled workers who followed orders, knew their place, and looked for affirmation from others. In other words, docile robots. I'll continue this history of our broken public schools in a subsequent episode of the show. Now, what can you do to fix public education in America? Here are two ideas. Go to local school board meetings. Let them know you and we are watching. Take notes. Write about what you experience and hear as a citizen journalist. Post it on social media. Write letters to the editor and opinion pieces for local papers and online news outlets and start a substack and share it with everyone you know. You can also consider running for your local school board. Attend school board meetings, run for school board. Two things just about anyone can do.
You know when you see something and that light bulb goes off? A deja vu moment? A I've seen something like this before moment? Well, that happened to me last week. I saw this article on the Fox News website. It reads, The Biden administration is offering a $500,000 grant to help teach the English language in Pakistan, in part by providing intensive professional development courses for Pakistani transgender youth. The State Department grant said it is aimed at teaching English language skills to Pakistani youth so they can better participate in the global community and prepare them for success in the workplace. The grant aims to reach that goal by focusing on three components. One, professional development for English teachers from non-mainstream institutions. Two, professional development for novice Pakistani English language teachers. And three, professional development for transgender youth and for Afghan teachers, students, and young professionals residing in Pakistan. Of course, this is absurd on its face. We're literally and figuratively flushing taxpayer dollars down the toilet. It's ridiculous. I remember seeing something similar once before in one of the myriad bullshit COVID relief bills. I have a link to a story about it in the show notes, but pictures are worth 1,000 words. Here's a tweet from Representative Thomas Massey. Let me read it. I predict the day our country's finances collapse, we will still be funding gender programs in Pakistan. Tonight's COVID relief slash stimulus bill has no less than $10 million for said programs attached to it. And you can see he's highlighted the language in the bill allocating $10 million to this bullshit. Why? Why is this being done? I have my theory. Pakistan is one of the most corrupt, one of the lowest integrity societies in the world. This is about corruption of American politicians. I guarantee you that if we were able to get into the details of what is going on here, we would find out that it's more money laundering, just like Ukraine. The money gets wired to Pakistan, and immediately some of that money is getting wired right back into the offshore accounts of U.S. politicians. During my campaign for Senate, I proposed that we have what I was calling, and I obviously didn't spend a lot of time coming up with a creative name for it, the Paquita Plan. It was designed to get corruption out of our government. Here's what it was all about. You'll notice that one aspect of it is outlawing offshore accounts. Unlike accounts here in the U.S., there is little ability to investigate, audit, or do anything else with offshore accounts. And the reality is nobody wants to. We must make them illegal, at least for politicians, with draconian penalties for breaking any law regarding them or prohibiting them. Let's face it, Crooks are going to be crooks. 
Let's just force them out of government into doing their crimes where it's easier to put them in jail. When they're an elected official, it's almost impossible. Just look at Joe Biden. That's our show for today. Please subscribe to the United American Show on Rumble or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to give us a like where you can. And please join our email list at unite.gfiohio.com. That's unite.gfiohio.com. And follow me on Twitter at mpukita. That's at M-P-U-K-I-T-A. And please remember, unity without truth is conspiracy. Stay safe. I'll see you next week.